0: does it or does it and why
1: can we just oh, well, it's all just
0: history this is life i just wanted to start off by asking you like what was your motivation for the website because i love how it's just like a simple content there's not a lot of like writing and text that bogs people down um what got you into making it, and did you make it by yourself? Well, I would love to tell you that uh, the
1: website was a stroke of genius, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could seduce the world with this meme that taught a monetary history? But it did that. It did not start out like that. Um, I have a friend. His name is Ben Prentice, and him and I are nerds, and we like to talk about monetary history, and we like to talk about history, and we like to debate ideas back and forth. And we have many, many, many late night conversations going back several years now, discussing these things and sharing a lot of data with each other and sharing charts. And we used to get in a lot of arguments with people when, when we had much smaller Twitter followings and it was easier. Um, and we kind of mutually agreed, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was just one place that we could send people to, to show them all of this these charts that we like to link to say, hey, no, 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 like a lot of things changed in the 70s when they changed the monastery policy. Um, Instead of having to go back and link those charts every single time we got in that conversation, we could just send them to this one site. And then I kind of came up with this idea was like, well, let's like make this a meme, right? Rather than just, and it kind of evolved from there. And when I realized um, that the site started to get a lot of traction, like it really started to spread around a lot. uh, I think the Lifetime views on the site are approaching like two billion at this point. And we have not really promoted it at all. It's all just been like word of mouth. It's very viral. You know, you've seen like Jack shared it on Twitter. Um, yeah, I, has I
0: was gonna ask it. you about that. Like yeah, what was that day like when you saw
1: it? Oh, it was it was amazing, man. It was it was incredible. But uh, just to finish the thought on that first question was that uh, at, when I realized that the meme had virility and that it was like sticky um we kind of revamped the website several times over its life like it the format hasn't ever changed but like we've gone to great lengths to like protect the meme right like we don't want we don't really want to provide the reader with any conclusions um we want to just provide the data and let them ask the question wtf happened in 1971 and and from there we want to kind of lay like a trail of breadcrumbs like we have the Bitcoin ad at the top, right? Which a lot of people give us crap for, but whatever. And the Hayek quote at the bottom. And then at the very bottom, there's like a link to like our blog and to like some podcast discussions we've done. But for the most part, like the interpretation, I, we, I, I've wanted to make it clear that like, the, here's the data, ask yourself the question, right? The, the whole point is to get people to ask the question, not necessarily arrive at my answer, but ask the question. Hey, what happened in 1971? Um, and, and like I said, from from now, from early on until now, like we've gone to great lengths to like try to protect the integrity of that meme itself. Uh, whereas originally, like at the very beginning, uh, that wasn't necessarily like the framework we were using.
0: Yeah, um, I remember when I first came across it, and obviously must've been primed for wanting to follow the breadcrumbs, uh, obviously into looking into monetary history and all that, and and Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff as well. And being a history teacher and just being like curious, just like, this is an interesting question. Like I want to find it out. Ended up printing off um, like a lot of the charts that you guys had and putting it up on a board in my classroom. So you could always see it at like the front of the class that you have like the question in the center obviously took the F part out, <laughs> just like what the hell happened. Um, and like had all the charts around it and like, even just like summarizing in some dot points, what the charts mean. Um, but that being said when imagine like the bell has gone and we're all standing around the front door and like some kids are over, you know, peering and having a look at it and just like, so like, what happened? What happened? I'm like, why don't you go find out? Um, I don't know how many of them took it took it up. A lot of them wanted to be told like right, right on the spot, right, like you were saying, and they didn't want to follow the breadcrumb. So, do you think that the meme only really works, or just like memes for just like teaching any topic in general? You have to be in the right mindset. Do you think that's the case, or yeah? Well, you're a teacher,
1: so. I'm sure that you probably, you don't have to answer this, but I'm sure that you know, when I say this, what I mean, um, my meme is not for 100% of people. My meme is for the 33%, right? Um, 33% of people show up at my website and they inject their own narrative into what they see. They say, oh, well this was Ronald Reagan, right? Or, oh, this was, you know, whatever. What this was the opening of Disney World, or this is capitalism, or what, whatever. It doesn't matter, and and I don't try to censor that. That's purpose. Like I've left it open to it. Obviously, I have biases there, right? Ben and I believe that it was the end of Bretton Woods, um, but I don't want to force other people to think what I think. I want them to think for themselves, right? And people who are using, they'll often use my site to push their own narrative. Obviously, aren't doing that, right? And then you have another third or three percent who look at that and just say, well, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Why don't they just tell me what happened? Like, why don't they just make this a blog and tell me exactly what happened? I want them to do that. Um, I'm not trying to reach those people either because they wouldn't have even gotten to my site if I had done that because it wouldn't be viral, right? It wouldn't be a meme. Like they, they would have just never read it, never clicked on it. Snowden never would have shared it. Jack never would have, because it's not compelling, right? It's not seductive. It's not interesting. The other 33% of the people who show up at the website, look at it and say, man, what happened? Right, I want to know. Like my curiosity has been sparked, and I know you know this as a teacher. Like you have those students; they just have a hunger for knowledge. Like they have a hunger for the truth, and they like to ask questions. They're not afraid of looking dumb. They're not afraid of not knowing the right answer. They don't necessarily want you to give them the right answer. They want to discover that, right? And uh, yeah, you're fun. never gonna convince the the sixty six percent that aren't interested in asking the question um, that importance, like that distinction. So those aren't my target audience, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting way to think about it, that you just like, and I think that's a thing that happens sometimes with, with education. It's just like, oh, you got to get everybody engaged all the time where you've hit the nail on the head where it's like, it shouldn't be. It's like you're going to get some people some of the time, and then you're going to get some people. Whether you know I'm at the front of the class, you know, showing a video or doing a dance or whatever, doesn't matter. It's just never going to grab them. Or if it's not like spoon fed, it's like I don't want to do any work. I really don't care. It's not my thing. Um, Yeah, but I love the way that it was presented. Um, The other thing was I for the people who are listening for like the topic that I teach in Year 12, which is looking at the Cold War period, um, I was wondering if you could maybe give a bit of a brief overview of saying what's the importance of Bretton Woods for the backdrop of what's happening in the Cold War? So... Because I always tell kids, you've got to have a look at what the money is doing, that it plays a larger role than, say, what the textbooks might say, that there might be one paragraph saying that, um, like, this was the, like, the financial effects or the economic effects. But I think they play a huger role on, like, the way people act and the way that countries act. So would you mind giving us a bit of an overview of Bretton Woods and what's happening in the background?
1: Yeah. And I want to be totally honest with you up front. Um, Bretton Woods and its role in the Cold War is actually not something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, <clears throat> the parts of history that I feel like I'm more familiar with are, um, pre-World War II history, um, you know, and, and monetary history in particular, uh, and and in regards to you know so I've I've read uh, some of Frank Fetter's work on the Chinese Cultural Revolution and I've read I'm currently working through the Gulag Archipelago, on uh, the the Bolshevik Revolution I've read Anthony Sutton's Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution but and now uh, Ayn Rand's uh, We the Living which is like a fictional account of you know communist Russia but other than that like I don't have um, a super in depth insight into the Soviet Union politics of the Soviet Union. I know a little bit about like um, Trotsky and and the Bolshevik revolution, but um, I would ask you, you know, what, what do you think, where do you think the cold war fits into Bretton Woods? And and maybe I can provide some insights from there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, So the way that I'm thinking about it is I think back to perhaps the first way that I was teaching the cold war, trying to build my heat map of understanding of everything that's going on. And I think it's, starts off like everything very simplistic that you know capitalism versus communism and then you look at the battles and the personalities um i can tell you that before like bitcoin or like that whole rabbit hole or your website um when it came to things like Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan it's just like right that's a side note let's just keep going um but now it's like front and center at the very beginning of when i talk about the topic that it's like here you go guys this is setting the stage that you have the end of world war Two, the world order is being reorganized and really what's a larger driving force behind perhaps maybe the soviet union and the united states not being compatible is that you had the Soviet Union and the United States going on completely separate monetary policies that you have, one, tying themselves to Bretton Woods. Um, The United States isn't going to give it up because they're going to become the centre of that and the benefactor of that. And they're also working in the Marshall Plan, so they're then trying to inject all those new funds, say, with um, requirements attached to those funds, to europe to try to curry more favor as well and the soviets are also doing that with their own central plan monetary system but yeah i think that's the the extent of my understanding that that's what i want to bring for the framework so it's not a black and white that it's like oh these people just don't think differently or one's evil or one's good or whatnot it's that they're they're drawing a line in the sand when it comes to what they're doing um yeah so who who was a part of well, well it's probably easier to say who else wasn't a part of Bretton Woods are you aware of that from like writing up your article about it or perhaps what the were there on my of head off the top of my head
1: I I I not I I couldn't rattle off a list for you but it, it's a lot of the countries that you might expect like non first world United Nations countries um so, so I, I think a lot of the reasons, um, the, so what you just described, your sort of journey of discovering, you know, this thinking, this way of thinking about uh, capitalism versus communism or socialism, um, I, I think part of the problem is the way that we think about capitalism as, as like a separate system that can be opted into or out of. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from Anthony Sutton, and he's an author who wrote a book. He wrote two books. One called Wall Street in the Bolshevik Revolution, and it's essentially about how um, capital markets, particularly financiers in the West, profited immensely um, by the the captive market nature of the Soviet Union. And he wrote another book called uh, Wall Street in the Rise of Hitler, and it was a, it was a, in a very similar Uh, tone of how uh, Western financiers profited immensely off of um, the socialist systems of Germany. Uh, So this quote is from Anthony Sutton, who wrote those two books. Monopoly capitalists are the bitter enemies of laissez-faire entrepreneurs. And given the weakness of socialist central planning, the totalitarian socialist state is a perfect captive market for monopoly capitalists so i would probably want to first define um to anybody listening that capitalism is not necessarily like a system of um of of interaction it's sort of a a, a, um, a way of defining the default state of human interaction right um humans act because humans have desires humans have ends to which they hope to achieve and you know, if you follow Maslow's hierarchy of needs, depending on how advanced your society is and how um, much of an access you have to wealth and and how um, privileged you are, right, for lack of a better word, um, you're going to fall somewhere on that scale of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're either going to be trying to keep yourself alive by getting enough calories and water that you don't die, or you know, you're going to be trading NFTs on a blockchain, on talking about it with your friends on Twitter. Um, depending on where you fall in that category in society capitalism is really just a definition of you know this idea that i work for something i maybe if i'm good at it i produce something from my efforts and if i produce enough of it i have some left over and i can trade it with other people you know to through the coincidence of wants right and then you have like i i grow apples you raise chickens i have way too many apples you have way too many chickens so we trade some apples for chickens and we're both better off because of it right because now i have chickens and apples and you have chickens and apples and we don't just have to eat one thing um and then you have the rise of like money that facilitates this exchange we have a coincidence of wants like you have chickens i have apples i don't necessarily want to trade chickens for apples but i have this money and we can exchange this um ultimate liquidity good right and that that is like the default nature of peaceful voluntary cooperation amongst human beings right and it has to happen it's how societies function um mm-hmm. And really, communism, socialism, any type of authoritarianism, really is just a uh, a way for some sort of central entity via monopoly on force to step into that interaction of voluntary and profitable exchange. Because two people don't exchange something unless they both agree that it's good, right, for both parties. Otherwise, that would be you know stealing, right? If if you say, well, you have to do this, right, because I want what you have. Um, And they say, well, I don't want what you have. Well, then that's, we call it stealing, right? And governments like to step in because governments have a monopoly on violence, like to step in and try to dictate um, those interactions, right? So really all that you had in the West was those types of interactions still have to happen for society to function, but there was a far more central planning in that interaction process um, in places like the Soviet Union than there were in the West, right? But then we need to kind of take a broader look at Bretton Woods and and realize that Bretton Woods itself uh, was a system of central planning of the monetary system. Uh, and, and then from there, there's a lot of branches and rabbit holes we could go down.
0: Yeah, um, I guess one of the rabbit holes that I want to go down is that like a favorite, like topic, like not even at school, just what history buffs like to talk about is that what caused like the end of the Cold War and reading through your article, looking at the origins of modern money, um, you talk about that when Nixon takes the United States off the gold standard, that's a form of soft default. It's a way of perhaps maybe getting the United States out of, the hairy position that it's found itself in perhaps once again, um, without having to, um, without having to pay the final check. Um, Especially for things like Vietnam, which by today's standards, I was having a look at it before this would be like around about a trillion dollars. The Soviet union, for example, um, um, alternatively, because they're on the Russian ruble and they're not participating in like a system where they can perhaps maybe use that same release valve. Um, They've got the Soviet Afghan war. They've got to pay for Chernobyl. I would think, and perhaps maybe what I'm trying to put out there is that the fact that the United States could use this relief valve gave them an ultimate edge Like in comparison to the Soviet Union, like they couldn't use it because like we saw what happened when you have Gorbachev come in and try to bring in Glashnov and Perestroika. Perestroika trying to bring in a little bit of capitalism and then the people just run with it. Just like you give them an inch, they take a mile as they should be because like you just said, they're trying to default back to like the original like basic state of what we want to do. (laughs) <laughs> yeah So what do you think Do you think there would be a fair enough case To say that Nixon's decision Perhaps maybe gave The United States a And its allies um, An advantage When it came to the end of the Cold War Which the Soviet Union Just couldn't compete with Because they were so centrally planned Like they couldn't use a relief valve For their wars and their disasters In the end I don't. I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think that
1: what the the end of Bretton Woods marked was a shift in central planning and capital markets. Uh, but you know, you, on a broad basis, you can't deny that despite those changes in capital markets, with the end of Bretton Woods and, and maybe all the way back to 1933 and 1913, and and like my article that I wrote you know, that you mentioned Fiat Lux, it goes back a lot further than that, this type of manipulation of capital markets. These mm. capital markets are very profitable uh, if, you, if you have a monopoly. Uh, the ability to print your own money or to default on your debts um, and remain whole is, is extremely enticing, especially to governments. But on a broad basis, you know, the United States had a lot less um, economic central planning than the Soviet Union. And, and for that reason, you know, in a geo- global geopolitical scale, They were just non-competitive uh and like you said you know all it took was a a little bit of capitalism which when you think about you know the definition that i laid out for what capitalism is you know them loosening the noose that they had on their populace just enough to let them be productive again right because you're not productive if you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor you have no incentive right that's why it requires so much abhorrent violence and so much political propaganda, and, and so much nonsense. That's why the further society gets from truth, which is, you know, voluntary peaceful cooperation is is profitable and good, right? And whether or not um, you think that central planners could do it better if you just put the right people in charge, it denies the, the basic nature of uh, incentives of peaceful cooperation amongst humans. It, it denies you know, the, the fundamental basis of of why people are uh, called to act and behave in certain ways, in ways that are beneficial to everybody and not just themselves, to not behave selfishly, right? So uh, I, I think that it's, you know, people like Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises, they anticipated the fall of the Soviet Union for all of these reasons, because they knew in a global geopolitical scale, uh, a, a nation that was centrally planned was was doomed to be out-competed by a nation that was, you know, more laissez-faire. Um, and, and now you're sort of seeing, you know, fast forward 50 years, right? We're 50 years beyond the end of Bretton Woods. And you're sort of seeing this play out again, but now there isn't really... Um, it's not like it was then. The Amer- America is much more centrally planned. The, the West, Western nations, United Nations in general, United Nations states in general, are much more centrally planned than they were 50 years ago because of the control, the monopoly control over the capital market. So you're not seeing uh, this breakdown like you did before. In fact, uh, China is doing their central planning a lot better than the West and has expropriated the West in that way by taking a lot of wealth and manufacturing and moving it over there because the United States refuses to let go of its grip over the monetary hegemony because that is its golden goose
0: yeah and i think that gets into like a i've just got a part that i took out of your article which i think it's the thing that like grabs me the most when we're talking about like the monetary history and like yeah you know nations defaulting on your debts and you know that rich person might think you know, who cares so like again they can print their own money but you know somebody is paying for it and this ultimately affects the people like the people that are living in the country through inflation, through this repricing, through, like you said, violence or coercive means. And it was interesting that you brought up Frank Doika early on when you were talking about looking into China and the communist revolution. That's a topic that I look at as well. And I remember listening, I won't say reading, listening to the audio book, (laughs) um, which was a mouse great famine and just hearing like people were to the point that they were trying to meet all these targets and like they were literally tearing down their houses to increase crop yields and so all that was left is that they were eating mud from the ground and the mud was like this clay white mud that they had to eat and when it got into their body it was like concrete and just Yeah, I feel like there are so many just cautionary tales, not only in the scope of time that I'm looking at, but just throughout all history, that like what you're saying now, which is that central planning, when you go to an extreme, that it's just never going to go well. But human nature just seems to be that once, once the power is consolidated, that they just feel like they can do it differently aren't they? Mm-hmm. Like, like modern monetary theory. Is like, Oh, it'll be different this time. It'll be different. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really worrying sign that when you look at perhaps even just the last hundred years that you could like bring up a handful of like examples of like, these people probably thought that they were smarter too. They probably thought that they could do a better job too. Do you agree that modern monetary theory is probably on the same path? Oh, it's absolute garbage, right? But 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 this is nothing new,
1: right? I mean, this is what humanity does. Um, in my opinion, this is why when when Benjamin Franklin left the First Continental Congress, uh, and and a standard by asked him, Mister Franklin, Mister Franklin, what did you give us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it, mm. right? Because this is this is the inevitable trajectory of humanity, um, is is to think that we're smarter. To think that we're smart enough to outsmart, you know, the the basic laws that we have to live by, um, and and in my opinion, you know, and I understand a lot of people may not share this opinion, and that's okay. That it, it takes a lot of time, a lot of books, a lot of um, late nights with whiskey to come yeah. to terms with the fact that that democracy is mob rule, right? And and you know, most people, we we started this conversation on this basis that I'm trying to reach the 33 percent. I don't care about the 66 percent. Um, that that is prone to buy their own everyone's prone to biases but is that is already convinced right and not willing to be intellectually honest or that isn't interested in asking the question at all because i want to know the truth right but i understand and i can sympathize with the fact that there's people who don't um but when those people's vote carries the same weight as everyone else's right you you're left with a system that is inevitably going to descend um, towards a lot of bad decision making and a lot of bad policy um, that may ultimately be very destructive, and it's why you know he, history is filled with tragedy because um, it's people thinking, "Hey, this time it'll be different." Let's vote this guy in; he's totally, you know. And and it almost always coincides with uh, monetary breakdowns, right? Because, like I said, yep. capital markets monopoly capital markets are so profitable um, that when crises come along it's impossible for democratically elected representatives to avoid using every tool at their disposal to address the crisis. You see this today, right? With, with the whole COVID thing, um, the, the response by governments who have all of this ability to wield their monetary hegemony and print money, right? The, the M2 monetary base increased 33% from last February. Uh, and that's because, you know, well, I would argue that it was because of greater macroeconomic um, business cycle, right? But a lot of people attributed that to, well, it was COVID. We had no choice, right? We had to shut down the global economy and the government had to print all this money to bail out all the banks and all the businesses and send people checks while they sat at home. But all of that is a, is a downstream of the fact that the government has the ability to do that in the first place. And the destructive consequences of those decisions can be witnessed you know, in, in Weimar Germany. You know, just Google Weimar Germany hyperinflation and look at pictures of people using the the German mark as wallpaper, or children playing with bricks of cash, right? Yeah, blocks or people wheeling wheelbarrows filled with money, just to try and go and buy a loaf of bread. All of that is a byproduct of monetary policy monetary policy enabled by the government's monopoly on capital markets right and all of that was done to fund world war one
0: yeah and that was just another interesting like rabbit hole because obviously getting into getting into the 1971 was the start then starting to think about Bretton Woods and then I saw some pictures floating around on Twitter about um I think it was the British Empire going off the gold standard as well. So it could continue to fund World War I. Um, and then obviously looking at your article as well, it just like keeps going and going and going. And yeah, I think my conclusion is that as long as you have this ability to default and print and have um and I like your definition that like fiat money is not like money that's not backed it's money by decree um that as long as you have money that is by decree you're always going to have these large scale conflicts that nobody asks for because like how do you have world war 1 and the build up of like military arms for these great empires If like, like there's got to be a point where perhaps the people say, you know, there isn't, you can't tax me anymore. Like there's no more money. Like you've, there's got to be money for us. And it's like, and then you have like a revolt if they push too far, but because there's this other way of getting the money, um, I think is one of the main reasons that you continue to have these like conflicts endlessly is that there's a cheat code to just like copy, paste, print more money and you don't have to ask the people for it. And then they get thrown into this like <laughs> into a disaster. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and also
1: I want to kind of touch on the other side of it because um, it's not as simple as, Oh well, if we just take away the government's ability to print money, then there will be no more war, right? Because um, go back to the earliest days of America, right? When America was arguably, you know, uh, for the most part, a very free nation. States had sovereignty. um, The federal government was was very limited in what it could do and its ability to be a despot, both you know, within its own borders and internationally, right? And and the earliest wars in America's history, they were all trade wars. Right. They were the War of 1812, the Barbary Coast Wars, the Quasi Wars, they were all fought over control of um the ability to ship goods between America and Europe. Um, you know, a lot of that intersected with the Napoleonic Wars, a lot of that intersected with um conflict between other nations that wanted to settle land in the West. A lot of it, you know, a lot of the early wars dealt around like American colonies fighting against the the native populations, right? And all of it, at the end of the day, was over people's ability to procure resources, harvest those resources for profit, and then buy and sell and tr- trade as they saw fit. Um, and, you know, as early on as the Barbary Coast Wars, a lot of the reasons, all of the reasons that America's first early national banks were started was to fund war efforts to protect shipping routes. So that the colonies could continue to profit off of, you know their production of of raw goods or textiles in the north and continue to trade with Europe or continue to trade with Africa um and to be able to protect that trade from you know, violent interference from other foreign nations. and And that isn't a new problem. And I think um, you know Bitcoin is unique in the fact that um, the game theory for it may be so strong that it may potentially disrupt the ability of large institutions like nation states to form and develop monopolies over violence in a long-term scale. And maybe, you know, theoretically, it could end uh, this this problem as old as time. But it's not as simple as to say, you know, it's, because that's why America started doing Central banking in the first place, right, was to fund its ability to defend its best interests, yep. and that that's totally reasonable, I think. But you know, we can see that where we are today is is far different than than where we were then.
0: Yeah, that we're looking at obviously these flow-on effects, and like, what are the like, what are the costs? What are the what are the trade-offs for this ability that we have? and yeah i think that's definitely what draws people like yourself and me and i know a lot of other people in the bitcoin community to it because we're curious we're looking at history um and we see that this new monetary system could definitely be a solution um i think i, I think you bring up a good point that it's not just going to be as easy as everybody going el salvador um even though that's interesting and um Exciting, but whilst whilst I got you on, do you mind talking about that? Do you think the fact that, um, Bukele decreed or like you know made it a legal tender, does that then go against the the ethos, or are you totally on board with what they're doing, or somewhere in the middle?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that I can disagree with um, the premise of of legal tender. And also look at what Bukele did and say that that will probably be a net positive. Um, I don't have to agree with the idea or the concept of a legal tender, which is you know just the government making a diktat as to what is you have to accept as money. Um, and say, well, if he's forcing them to use Bitcoin, there will be benefits to that. Um, I don't think that there's a conflict of interest there. Some of You know, some of my friends and colleagues would disagree, but I think that's okay. You know, I I don't, we don't have to agree on everything, but um, I think on a long-term basis, it's going to be a net positive for the nation. Um, I think it would be different if before he came along and made Bitcoin a legal tender, they had no legal tender laws in El Salvador, but that's simply not the case. And I think if, you know, all else remaining equal, you have legal tender laws where you're forced to accept the dollar and legal tender laws where you can accept the dollar or bitcoin uh i think that the latter is always going to be preferable and i don't think i don't think you know all like i said all else being equal you could ever argue against that
0: yeah i think that's a really i guess well thought out like way of thinking about it that it doesn't have to be you don't have to be extreme of like it's all good or all bad that you're looking at it's net positive in some ways and then obviously don't agree with the way that it's administered but um are people in poverty or are people who are struggling with like remittance payments like is it going to be better for them and would they had not been in the 33% that you've been talking about who would have ever gone down that rabbit hole in the first place would they have just always continued to use Western Union because that's just the way that it was done
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Um, I think that's about everything that I wanted to um, have a chat about Colin um, it's been fantastic I, I know that you've definitely changed my mind or like given me more to think about with the topic and looking at like the influence of monetary history um, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up for I guess kids who are studying history, maybe some other rabbit holes or some other breadcrumbs you'd want to leave as a bit of a sign off.
1: Um, no, but, but broadly speaking, I would say to any, anybody listening, especially younger people, um, that you should, you should never be afraid to ask why, right. And and if you get an answer that you're not satisfied with, you should continue to push, right um just because your teacher says something just because your parents say something just because the news says something just because the president says something doesn't make it true doesn't make it right right and and you should always 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 strive to think for yourself and you should arrive to conclusions based on information that you've discerned for yourself and it really helps you know in a lot of cases to especially navigating this increasingly complicated world to um develop for yourself or arrive at with for yourself or discover for yourself some some fundamental first principles some of mine are you know like i talked about earlier with what capitalism is right just voluntary profitable exchange between people um it helps break if you can break down the rhetoric of of modern day politics into you know fundamental first principles if you can understand okay this is what they're saying, but this is what's actually happening. Um, it's much easier to navigate the world, you know, and, and that's why I love and advocate Austrian economics. I would highly encourage um, young people to to go and read Mises, to go and read Rothbard, to go and read Hayek, because uh, they were brilliant thinkers, and they thought from first principles, and their knowledge has stood the test of time.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Colin. Um, thank you, listeners. I hope that you like this. This was something a little bit different. However, I think it Kind of shows perhaps maybe a little bit of motivation for myself for the topics, some things that you can get out of this other than just thinking, oh, why would I spend time looking at history? I'm not going to be a historian or a librarian, that it's a time for you to listen to people, to work out your own first principles, as Colin is saying, to come to your own conclusions. So I really hope that you enjoyed this uh, particular episode and we'll see you next time on the Modern History HSC podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern History HSC podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern History HSC podcast. And if you have the time, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to attract more high-profile guests into the future. And finally, remember that truth are not merely facts, because facts alone can be manipulated either intentionally or unintentionally. Truth will only reveal itself when an individual undertakes an honest, thorough, and courageous investigation. We must restrain our intent to prove contemporary points and concerns, and instead accept that we could be the exact people that we are studying and critiquing, This is true empathy, and it is uncomfortable, but is necessary in the pursuit of truth. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.